Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today is a writer, director and editor of many award-winning films as well as the producer of art-related video content and a university instructor. I first came across their work with the premiere of their new documentary Addicted to Life, a paradoxical, intimate, vulnerable and ultimately inspirational documentary about the Belgian Paralympic champion Marieke Vervoort, who takes control of her ailing health to request medical aid in dying. The film charts the dramatic events of Avod's final inspirational three years, during which her acceptance of death becomes an affirmation of life. It's an extraordinary piece of storytelling that demystifies one of the most controversial issues of our time and captures the willpower, strength and spirit of Marika as she fights for her right not to die, but to truly live. Um, it is with immense privilege that I now welcome them to the podcast and invite them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing. Hi, Francesca, and to the audience, thank you so much for inviting me. My name's Paula Rappaport. I'm, uh, I live in the U.S., in New York City, Brooklyn, where I am now. I'm a filmmaker. I've been making films since I was about 16 and uh so that's a long career and i went to nyu film school and just continued on somehow doing films independently and moved over from fiction very very early to documentary and um have edited several feature documentaries for other filmmakers and um so this newest film is has premiered recently in the last six months and uh it's getting out to the world. It's called Addicted to Life, a feature doc. Um, as you said about Marika Vervoort, this extraordinary Belgian athlete who had such a fascinating story. When I heard about it, I thought, I think this needs to be made into a movie. That's where it began. <laughs> Thank you so much. And as I said in my introduction and, and briefly, we spoke um, before, before I hit record, um, I spoke a lot about the film and it's protagonist however as we said a documentary is about more than one person it's a relationship um, and I'm interested to first therefore before we discuss the film to delve into your own story and what then led up to that relationship so what was your journey into documentary film 
Oh, the journey into documentary film. Um, good question. When I was at NYU, I went uh, very young. I was 17 and um, went from an all girls specialized high school in New York to an 80% male uh, course. Um, and I was the youngest one in the class, so that was culture shock, but I did not, I was not interested in documentary at all. Um, I thought they were boring. PBS documentaries did not appeal to me. And I never took a documentary class when I was there, which was not wise because they had a brilliant fellow named George Stoney who was legendary teaching. And he later invited me back to show one of my films. But I actually did do a film that was kind of on the borderline. It started out as a short fiction and then became a documentary about the making of the film. I was very, very interested in reflexive film, films where you are aware of the making of the film. And so that involved documentary. And then uh, that that's always interested me, this sort of border area where you can incorporate fiction into a documentary or vice versa. And I have done a lot of work doing that. Um, and but then I met a lot of people in documentary in New York, and part of it is the people. They they happen to be really wonderful people, um, much kinder, much nicer. They're very interested in the world, um, and this became a milieu that I integrated into, partly through some jobs, partly through just chance. But I think it was the people that drew me in, and then um, I I began to realize that I could really incorporate this kind of poetic aspect into documentary. And that crossed the, that made me cross the line to decide to work primarily in documentary. And um, I think the films all have had a poetic element to them. That's particularly interesting, interesting to me that I would say, and the world of human emotion uh, is the thing that I really am most interested in. And so they are not factual documentaries at all. They're often, they're always extremely about the emotionality of the situation and the relationships. And um, I, they, I do not come at it from a journalistic point of view, but more from an emotional human point of view. Um, and anyway, that's how I got into it. And I noticed that you've studied psychotherapy. Is Has that informed your interest in people and their emotions? Yes. I mean, my interest in people and their emotions led me to do that. Uh, in, I think it was 2002 to 2006. Well, I received a Guggenheim Fellowship in film, which is a very high honor. And I it was really one of the greatest honors I've ever gotten. And I thought it's, you know, it's a financial award, it's money award, and it was enough to live on for a year. And I thought, what would I like to do with this, with this opportunity? I thought I really would like to study Gestalt psychotherapy. I'd had a Gestalt psychotherapist and I thought the work was absolutely beautiful. She was fantastic. She came from the arts herself, Ruth Walford, a dancer former dancer. So I took a course, a summer course there at the Gestalt Associates for Psychotherapy in New York. And then, and I decided to sign up for four years. It was not a full time. It was, you know, it was, I was able to integrate it into my editing work life and filmmaking. 
And um, it was a little tricky at one point because I got the funding from French television to do a film that had enormous psychological import called Writer of O. It's a film I'm very proud of that very much integrated fiction into document. And the amazing story about that film is that the author hid her identity and even whether her gender for 40 years until her name was Dominique Ori. She went under the pen name Pauline Rayage. And the film is very much about Dominique Ori and how she finally revealed her identity as a mild-mannered literary editor, a female with a, well, however, an androgynous first name. Anyway, so that film, I got funding from French TV and it was you know a little difficult to continue the Gestalt studies, but I managed and and I I then anyway that, that I think there's very much alignment between the uh, world of the the of emotion and psychotherapy and that type of work, particularly Gestalt, that's very present centered and very much in the moment and pe- the souls that one can reveal, people's souls that you reveal in documentary. So uh, it was it was very aligned. And I'm actually now just picked up, a, a, I started very recently another course on, on life coaching because, and several people I know in documentary have found a way to align these two. So I'm going to see if I can do that again. But that world very much interests me. Uh, act, um, method acting, I've taken several courses in that. You see people's souls revealed in front of you. In acting, in the, in the acting classes, it's it's literally live in front of you in the improvisations. And in documentary um, and in film, that's the most interesting thing to see on screen, in my opinion. You know? That's so interesting. I don't know if you've heard of the British artist Gillian Waring. Um, she, she's made films in the past where she's uh, invited people um, to experience method acting classes um, and the things that are revealed about them through that process um, are really, really interesting. I definitely recommend looking her up if, if you're not aware of her work. She also filmed people outside of Birmingham nightclubs. Um, she's from Birmingham originally. Um, it's simply called Drunk, I think. <laughs> I think the film piece that, <laughs> that came from that. <laughs> but again, real insights into, into the human soul. <laughs> but the Jillian method acting Waring. one. I will look her up. Gillian Waring, it sounds fantastic. I would love to. I did propose a film to French television at one point because I had a wonderful commissioning editor there who worked with me on a film called Family Secret in 2000. She came across it at the documentary film festival in Amsterdam, IDFA. And um, and she uh, was the commissioning editor on Writer of O, Family Secret, and then her colleague on a film I did on Hair, the musical called Hair, Let the Sunshine In. So, and then again on a film on Nadia Komenic, the Romanian gymnast. And that, in a way, led me to make the film on Marika Vervoort, the film on Nadia Komenic. Nadia was a... Um, an incredible, what can you call her? She was a phenomenon in 1976 at the Montreal Olympics. She was a 14 year old kid from Romania, not from Bucharest, even from outside a small town. And her coaches, Bella and Marta Caroli were absolutely brilliant coaches, these Romanians. And their whole team was exceptional. And, but she, was the one that got the first perfect 10 in history 
at the Olympics at 14 years old. She was perfect. I mean, no, that word indicates something that doesn't actually exist, but she was deemed perfect by the judges. She got seven perfect tens and it had never been done before. Anyway, they decided for one of the biographical channels at Arte, this great station in France and Germany, to do a film. They've done Barbara Streisand, they've done Clint Eastwood, many, many personalities, but they, uh, they wanted to do a film on Nadia Comaneci and brought me in to do it, commissioned me, and it was a fantastic experience. I never was very involved in sports, was not that interested in sports, but I'm half Romanian and uh, had had successful films with them in the past. So I went over, well, I did um, a lot of the work on it in New York and then went over and worked with a great editor, Yen Levan, on the editing in Paris. And um, that film did very well. And then I thought, female, a sportswoman, exceptional. So that it was not about Nadia now. It was called the gymnast and the dictator. So it was about her and that political situation with Nikolai Ceausescu. Very, very interesting, you know, story about how people had to do certain things in a certain way under the regime of Ceausescu, the dictator. So when I heard about Marika Vervoort and her story and a sportswoman that whose story merges over into other aspects of life that are very, very interesting. I thought, why not? This is a great paradoxical story that very much aligns with my interests. Let's see if this could make a good documentary. That, you know. So it was right after the Nadia Komenich, Gymnast and the Dictator, that we did this new film. We started it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I did I did note that sort of it seems like a pivot for you, the Vervoort film, but as you say, it ties in then with what you had done previously. And in the case of these two most recent films, has it felt like a pivot in terms of your style and approach? No, I would not say so. I think there's actually remarkable consistency in the work. Um, they're all very different. I was working more on very personal subjects or subjects related to people in the arts. You know, Writer of O was about a, a novelist. Um, I'd done a commission on a, a sculptor in New York, Lenore Tawney, ages ago. Hair was about a theater piece, a worldwide love, love theater piece, um, and a period of time, of course, you know, the 60s, summer of love and all that. Um, and then Family Secret was a very personal story about discovering that I had a secret Romanian half-brother that I discovered in my late 40s. Um, and Christ, truth was stranger than fiction. But so the, so the subjects have been all quite different, but I think the style is, the style is very is very consistent. So yeah. And we've discussed between ourselves the fact that, this film is part of a wider conversation about how we frame a person's choices. Was euthanasia something that you already had strong views on before coming across Marika's story? Not exactly euthanasia. Um, I did have, well, medical aid in dying, which is kind of a wider term, I guess you'd say, about people being, having control over their exit from this world. Uh, my mother had died in 2005. My dad died when I was just a teenager. But 
at the time, I mean, I went through this long experience with my mother, who was an artist, Marjorie O'Brien Rappaport, and she was an exceptional person. And that journey was both heartbreaking and incredibly illuminating. I, I was sleeping in her bed with her when she actually expired um, in 2005. And it was almost unbearable, but boy, it taught me so much. And she taught me so much in that process. So I was very interested because we are all going to go there, which is extremely hard for me to accept viscerally, but I know it's true. And Buddhist studies are all about that. And I, you know, have had been at many Dharma talks, um, but it's incredibly hard for people to accept. But if you do accept it, then the question is, how do you make that exit the most fulfilling, life-embracing, kind and gentle? And so I heard about an organization in America called Compassion and Choices from a very good friend of mine, Jack Goldman, who is a film researcher who finally died at 97 a couple of years ago. He told me about this group and they legislate in the US for freedom for people to uh, state by state. It's a state by state law in America. And now there are 10 states with, with the help of compassion and choices that have allowed medical aid and dying to exist in their states. It started with Oregon about 27 years ago, moved on to the state of Washington. And then one by one, there are 10 states and the District of Columbia where it's permitted, but not euthanasia. And I learned this in starting to make this film. Euthanasia is a term that cannot be used politically in the United States. It's a, in the United States, it's a huge no-no. And in Belgium and Holland, that term is used uh, because and Canada, which recently passed a law allowing both euthanasia and wider medical aid and dying, that means that a doctor can give you shots that will allow you to pass through from life to death. The doctor uh, gives you the shots. In America, you may only do it yourself. You have to drink a drink that makes you expire. That is also um, an option in Canada. And a Canadian doctor who is an expert on this, Stephanie Green, told me something that blew my mind. She said that since this law was passed about whatever it is, five years ago in Canada, 98 to 99% of patients who opt for medical aid in dying choose euthanasia, meaning they choose to have the doctor administer shots rather than drinking this potion that ends your life. 98 to 99%. That is so overwhelming. People want the doctor to administer the shots. I would want that. I don't want to have to drink a foul tasting drink and maybe end up, you know, throwing it up or having having it not work. It, anyway, in America, it is not permitted for the doctor to give you administer shots. And that is an area where compassionate choices cannot, they they can only advocate for the existing laws in states in America. They are not trying to get euthanasia approved in America. They are trying to get medical aid in dying approved. And I think it's a big philosophical issue. And um, to me, seeing Marika's life, the, the, working on this film, Addicted to Life, allowed us and, and the audience uh, following to get a very, very intimate view of what this 
process is and how one should comes to this conclusion to opt for uh, medical aid in dying or euthanasia. And it gave us this very upfront, front row, personal understanding of it. And I think you do, it, it, euthanasia actually in Greek, I think comes, it means gentle death. And that is what you're looking for if you have a terminal situation. And in Belgium, you don't actually have to be terminal. As I understand the law, I hope I'm not misstating this. You can, if, if it's a matter of uh, exceptional, unbearable pain, that is a reason to opt for that as well. So I think with Marika Vervoort, my protagonist, she learned about the law when she was 29, I believe, and she didn't exercise that right until she was 40. So even though she was approved for it, the remarkable thing about Marika's story is it gave her the mental liberation to keep on living and living to the maximum because she knew that she had control over what her death would be. And that was so profoundly liberating to her that she had a wonderful life in spite of this extreme pain that her unusual condition, you know, left her with. And she is an incredible example of how this legal situation of allowing people to have a say in the matter can open up their lives and make their lives so much better in the meantime. That is really the heart of the film. It's about the mental liberation that one experiences. And Stephanie Green, the physician in Canada, when we talked about the movie, she said she has seen that many, many times, the sense of lightness. She literally can see it in people's faces and body language when they learn that they can have a doctor help them and they have a terminal disease in Canada, they suddenly lighten up. She's seen this many times and that I found incredibly moving. I saw it with Marika, but she was not unique in that. She says it in the movie. When she heard about it and got the right, it was like, Ooh. she actually uses that, that uh, says it that way. Suddenly she felt so much lighter and had, and just felt so much happier and so much better that she didn't have to worry about this. It wasn't like a, this, cloud, this heavy iron-like cloud that had been oppressing her and making her feel suicidal. She was suicidal, Marika Vervoort. And uh, all that went away when she got, when she found out that she could have, eventually, that she could have a doctor help her go through it when the time came. And it was 11 years later. So she had a remarkable, wonderful life in the meantime. And actually, this is uh, jumping to the end of the film, but stylistically, you play with that at the end because we are left with that impression of light in in those closing images which is something that i i really loved you have that that darkness that falls um as the camera well it's the the only point in the film really that we're not with marika in that really almost kind of claustrophobic intensity at times and then there's this in incredible calm and and joy that you feel at the end and those reminders of Marika's energy and lightness and 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 life um in in those reflective shots and was that a conscious decision yes absolutely um in the editing of the film uh she did 
decide to exercise the right to euthanasia with Dr. Vim Distelman's, her doctor, at night. It was eight o'clock at night. It was in the month, late October. So uh, we were there. My husband is Wolfgang Held. He's an ASC member, incredible director of photography. We shot for three years. So we were there that night of October 22nd, 2019. She had many friends come over. And as, as the light fell, um, people started to file out because she only had invited a very limited, limited number of people into the room with her, bedroom with her, where the doctor was going to give the shots. Uh, her parents were allowed to stay. Her friend, um, Leva Bullens, her friend Jan Dessert, a ner uh, her psychologist of many years, and, and a nurse, that good friend of hers. Um, so we also had agreed with Marika not to be in the room. You do not see the shots administered. That was an agreement we made early on, about a year before or more. But the, the, the night fell. We saw people leaving. Um, the door of the room where we, Wolfgang and I were filming closes. And, it, and then we, we quickly got our equipment and left the apartment. I think this was, the doctor showed up at 8 p.m. And this must have been shortly thereafter, 10 after 8, we left. More people left, and then the only ones that, that remained were the ones I mentioned. We went out on the street. She has, she's on a quiet suburban street. And we went to the end of the block, and we set up the tripod, uh, Wolfgang and I, and we just thought, we'll just run the camera to see what happens. And because we had no idea what was going on inside the apartment. Marika could have made the decision at the very last minute to say, no, I don't want to die tonight. The doctor, part of the law is the doctor has to ask the patient to state, to affirm that they do want the doctor to go forward with the shots that will take the life of the patient. And Jan later told us, her good friend Jan, that she did say yes, she affirmed it, and they did go forward. But one can always say no at the last minute because you might change your mind. Um, and reschedule or decide to die naturally. But anyway, she did decide to go through it. And so we waited and waited. And after maybe an hour and a half, the doctors came out, the doctor and his uh, associate, and we saw them leave. And the parents did not emerge. We thought the parents might emerge with her service dog, Zen, who we had come to love very dearly. But they stayed. And finally, we went up into the hills nearby and did some wide shots of the dark street that kind of evoke this stillness and loneliness after Marika's death because she was such a live wire. She was so funny and so full of life. And that night, it was all silent. So that is, uh, that's in the film. And then uh, it fades out and fades back up with her memorial. And you see a little bit of the memorial. And then Marika had said to me at one point, and it's in the movie, she was very funny and pushy and had her own ideas about things. She said, Paula, I think the movie should end with the best things that I've done, like the high points, like the bungee jumping. She, she did bungee jumping and skydiving. She did an indoor skydiving. Um, my my medals at the Paralympics, and then it should fade to white, and that's the end. 
So I thought, actually, that's a really good idea cinematically. <laughs> so after the memorial, the darkness of the night where she passes away, the memorial where the father talks movingly about her, and then you see these wonderful successes, little clips that you've seen in the movie and some new ones of her winning the gold, winning the silver, uh, the bungee jumping, the skydiving, and it fades to white. And then uh, the final credits come up saying the thousands of people that came to the visitation of the funeral and her medals and then the credits. So uh, she gave me a very good idea, kind of a blueprint for, I mean, no, no character I've ever worked with has told me how to end the movie in the past, but really did. And she was actually spot on. So um, after many, many decades of editing, I thought, well, this woman knows what she's talking about. Let's do it that way. And, you know, that's how the movie ends. But so it ends not with the sadness. And I did hear a lot of tears in the audience on the screenings I've been to, but kind of with the joy. And um, so, you know, your podcast is about joy. And it I mean, she was she had a lot of joy in her and it ends with her most joyful, some of her most joyful moments that were caught on film anyway. And you give us a lovely insight there into, into some of the interactions that you had with Marika. And this is the culmination of a, of a three-year relationship. And I'm interested to just delve into that a little bit and how your relationship evolved over those three years. Hmm. Well, she was somebody who um, became friends with people very quickly. So when I got in touch with her, I got in touch, actually, it was because of the Nadia film, I was able to reach her because the Nadia Komenich, the gymnast and the dictator had been shown on, I think, 10 or 12 stations around the world, not just Arte, but also um, uh VRT in Belgium. So I, I got, had the name of the commissioning editor. I called that the woman and she was able to put me through to Marika. So I said, um, I've heard about your story. We had a Skype call and um, this is November, 2016. And um, I said, my husband and I, he's a great DP director of photography. We're going to come to Germany and, and Paris at Christmas, can we come by? It's right in between, can we meet you? And she said, yes, so we did. So the day we met her, it was like we were lifelong friends. I mean, immediately. Uh, she was so embracing and fun. And I tend to have that with people. And suddenly we were like good friends on day one. And we didn't have, we did bring our equipment with us, but we didn't intend to shoot more than a half hour interview with her that day in December, 2016. And we filmed, I think it was seven hours. <laughs> she had so much to say and she, and she was so electric and so effervescent and her dog of Zen was incredibly appealing. And so we just filmed and we filmed her whole story. She had a bit of a line. She had been filmed a lot for both Belgian and British TV and short docs had been made and one longer doc, hour long, called The House had been made about her. But she was very comfortable in front of the camera. She had a bit of a line, like, you know, like a politician where she had ways of talking about her history. I learned that later, but it was all incredibly interesting on day one. And we use a lot of that interview in the film. 
Um, and then uh, as time went by, we became much, much more intimate and I saw my, the dark side as well as the promo side um, and got to know her better and more deeply. But I have to say, we were friends from day one. And then I started calling her frequently from New York and we would have these Skype calls and phone calls and um, we would go over whenever we could to film. I mean, it was very, you know, it was a lot to fly over to Belgium from New York to shoot. So we did several shoots. We flew to Lanzarote in the Canary Islands. She invited us to meet her there the three months later and film for several, you know, 10 days or so. Then we met her in Portland, Oregon, and we did many shoots. Um, so the relationship developed, and it developed partly through these Skype calls that we had frequently. And that is actually a big element in the editing of the film. Our discussions on Skype, where you learn many things about her when we couldn't be present, you know. So it was a kind of a device in this film because we were so far away and we couldn't always go. And once or twice we hired a wonderful crew, a camera and sound person in Belgium to shoot when Wolfgang and I could not fly over. And they did a terrific job. Norman Baertz, Stephen Van Roy, these guys that were very, very skillful and shot just like Wolfgang shoots. So the relationship maintained, developed. There were gaps where I didn't talk to her for a few months, but we were always, always picked up and were in touch. And she knew that when she would decide to exercise her right to have uh, the doctor help her die, we would definitely come over for that. Um, but I did have talks with her saying, you know what, Marika, this movie does not require you to die for the film to be done. How It's all about how this law has allowed you to live. That's what the movie's about. It's not about your death. It's about how you're living in the meantime. So we talked about how if I could finish the editing in time, that she could come to the premiere. And we both, I mean, I had images of her wheeling on stage. She had images and we laughed and talked about it, you know, and, oh, will you invite my parents? Will you invite some good friends? And we pictured that, but the editing took a long time. The fundraising was very, very difficult, although we did finally raise the funds for, the uh, shooting and the, and the completion through some wonderful foundations and government organizations, both in New York and Belgium, but it did take too long. And finally she felt for her life that it, the time had come where, I mean, the day we met her, she said, when the bad days outweigh the good, then I will make this decision to die. That's when I'll pick a date. And the big thing for her was picking a date. And honestly, the bad days did outdo the good for a very long time, but her standards kept changing. She just wanted to live. And even though, well, oh my God, um, Francesca, you cannot imagine the number of times we would fly over there and she would be fall into the most terrifying looking seizure where she couldn't breathe. The seizures were not epileptic. They came from, as we understood it, so she was in such a degree of physical pain and uh, cramping in the mid part of the body. She was paralyzed from the waist down that, that it would like, she'd feel like she was suffocating. And, um, and that started happen, happening more and more and more frequently. She had more and more periods where she would go into the hospital for a few days. They knew her very well at the local two hospitals. Um, and she kept on keeping on. I mean, it was really remarkable that she kept pushing off the date. 
And she would come up with more things to do, more things to add to her so-called bucket list that she referred to, to make her life worth living. But I think the, finally, like the, the stress of various, the, the seizures and the infections that she was getting from port, you know, where she had to have drugs administered. Finally, she just couldn't tolerate it anymore. So she did pick a date in September, 2019, she picked a date at the end of October. And she had a few things she still wanted to do. She wanted to ride in a, in a race car on a racetrack, which we filmed and is in the movie. And her younger sister, who we hadn't really met or gotten to know, Hula uh, Vervoort, was going to have a baby in late September. And, um, and Marika wanted to, she was 40 at this point, and she wanted to be an aunt and see this baby be born, who turned out to be born, a little boy named Zappa, to her sister and brother-in-law. She wanted to stay alive for that. And then she did those things and she stuck to the date. She stopped putting it off. And she, we had one funny conversation in Chris, at Christmas 2018, where she said she wanted to do this in March or April. Her birthday is May 10th. And, um, and I said, Marika, don't you want to stay alive for your birthday? Because she was very into her birthday and always had big celebrations and parties. She said, no, I don't want to be 40 years old. 39 is okay. And then she start, started laughing. That's in the movie. It's one of our Skype calls. And the fact that she could, you know, joke about this was so incredibly refreshing, you know. Um, but she did end up turning 40 because the doctor was unavailable before her birthday. And I think she wanted to stick it out for the birth of this baby in the race car. And so she stuck it out till she was four, about 40 and a half, October, end of October. And then she stuck to that date and we flew over and, you know, it was pretty profound to be there when she made this choice. I mean, I've never had an experience like this and I hope I never have to again, making a film. I mean, I'm done making films about death, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're thinking of doing a musical next or something. Um, you know, this film is about cheer and about life, but it also was very, very emotionally draining, you know, to be in partnership with Marika when she had this very profound, uh, disease and this very profound action that really you know is at the heart of the film you can't ignore it that's what it's about you know it's about life and death i mean it's the most profound subject there is that's why i really want this film uh it will be on belgian television we're very eager my partners and i to get it on to uh british television i'm hoping that it will show on the bbc i'm very eager to have it on german and french television because these three countries in particular have been, um, it's in the legislatures and it's very much in the public uh, consciousness whether people will be able to have this right in, in UK, France and Germany. They're all, uh, they're very opposing forces. The Catholic Church is very, very much in opposition to this around the world, but many, many forces I believe the it's in the zeitgeist, and I believe the the picture is changing. State, year by every year, more states in the U.S. accept medical aid and dying. Canada accepted it. Australia, state by state, accepted it. Finally, New South Wales went over about two years ago, and it's definitely the whole 
picture about medical aid and dying worldwide is shifting. Spain allows it. A Catholic country like Spain. Um, I think there are 10 nations. I should have brushed up on it before we spoke. Um, and and it, But it keeps changing, so I can't keep up with it necessarily. Uh, but it's definitely becoming much more widely available. But these very sophisticated countries like the UK do not allow it yet. New York State does not allow it. And New Jersey does. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, Montana, which is thought of as a relatively conservative state, allows medical aid and dying in New York State and Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and, and New Hampshire don't. Uh, little by little, it's going over. And I really want this film to show in in uh, around the U.S. and in these uh, countries where it, this very important topic is under discussion, because I feel that with Addicted to Life, with this documentary and Marika's story, you get a very personal view of the the dilemma of the plus the the negatives and the positives. This was very painful to her parents and to her friends that she had made this decision, but they knew it was the right one. And you get a very personal view of how of the the beneficial effects of this freedom to choose. And I think that her story really encapsulates how beneficial this law is for society. That's why I really want people to see this film very, very widely. And I hope that happens. Absolutely. And that that is the message that I feel really is communicated by the film. And it is that at times really uncomfortable proximity, um, both to the conversations that were a fly on the wall to, and also to Marika's pain, which the camera doesn't shy away from either. And I can only imagine as a friend and keeping the camera rolling through those episodes where we see her in intense suffering must have been excruciating and really, really difficult, um, despite kind of having a sort of a professional detachment from that, and a, a, or not professional detachment, but a, a reason to be filming that because of the necessity of, of telling that story in, in the way that you have. And, and there's a particular part of the film that I just want to take you to, which I found particularly intense, which is that conversation between Marika and her father in the car. Mm -hmm. um, and they're having a conversation about the timing of her death and the preparations for it. And he doesn't feel that he's been included in, in that um, and is sort of trying to get her to, to empathize with their situation as parents as well and that she can't have it all her own, <laughs> own way. But there's just something really so intense about that. And we're in the dark. The, the camera is filming from the back. Um, we don't see their faces. There's long pauses. It feels very deliberate, those those camera angles as well. And I'm just interested in your experience of filming that intensely uncomfortable conversation. Well, we had no idea that that was what was going on, to be honest. Um, that was the night. Uh, the chronology in the film is slightly moved around for dramatic purposes in the last 
a few scenes there, but she had a goodbye party, which you see in the film on a Saturday night where all her friends came. It was very jovial. She was not so jovial. She was drinking a lot of kava and very emotional. She was crying. She was laughing. And then for the next two and a half days, she was going to go back into the hospital to try to rest. The euthanasia was scheduled for a Tuesday. This was a Saturday. And so that phone call, I mean, that conversation, I should say, between her father, Joss, and her is in the car. He's actually driving her to the hospital in reality. In the movie, he's driving her home. Um, so you, so what happened was um, Wolfgang, who was shooting, jumped into the back of Joss's car with, with uh, Joss and Marika. We had a rental car, and I jumped into the rental car and followed them. It was a hospital that was one of the biggest ones in Belgium. It was 40 minutes drive. So I followed them. The sound man, Stephen, had been doing sound. He threw the microphone into the back of the car with Wolfgang. And uh, Marika had a mic on her. The father didn't, but Wolfgang had a mic on the front. And he's German, so he understands some Flemish, maybe 20%. I understand less than he. But a lot of the, the conversation in the car was her talking in English to the camera. She loved to talk to the camera. And Wolfgang at one point said, um, meanwhile, I'm in a car behind. I had no idea what was happening in their car. And Wolfgang said, Marika, you don't need to talk to me. It's okay. you know." And then they started having this conversation in Flemish. And they assumed, I'm sure, that Wolfgang did not understand. I think. And that's my guess. I never asked Joss. Um, and we did not know what this conversation was about until I got it home to New York and got it translated. But Wolfgang kept saying to me, I think just from their faces and body language, something really important was happening in that phone call in the car. We've got to get that translated. And he was completely spot on. Wolfgang has an incredible intuitive sense when he's shooting. Incredibly intuitive. And then we got it translated and the sound on the father was bad. We, it, the sound mixer was able to pull out the father's dialogue. And then you find this unbelievable scene where there's, she has planned the night of her euthanasia three days hence. She's planning all these people to come over. He wants to have an intimate time with his wife and his daughter who's about to die, you know, at the, on the 22nd. And she hasn't even told him the timing that the doctor's going to come at 8 p.m. This comes out in the conversation. And you can really feel for the father. And for there's still, even though Marika has grown over the course of the film in her relationship to her parents, and that's part of the development of her as a character, she still is the spoiled child wanting to have it all her way. And he is trying to keep up and be integrated. That's how I analyze it. But it's interesting that you bring up that scene. Many, many people have talked about that scene and the how it encapsulates the relationship between him as her father and her as the protagonist, the subject, the person who's going to go through this life-changing ending event. So thank you for bringing up that scene. It was... 
you discover things in the shooting. And then in this case, for me, in the editing of the film, sometimes there are these jewels that are there in the footage. I mean, we had over 150 hours of footage that was cut down to an hour and 20 minutes. That's not unusual for a documentary, but in the cutting room, it's you have to eliminate 99% of your material and you got to somehow construct something that makes emotional sense and narrative sense um, from all this stuff. And that scene definitely was one of the, it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful scene. I will mention one other scene with the parents that is one of my favorite scenes in the film. Late in the movie, we got, uh, Wolfgang and I were in Belgium. We had a date to shoot with Marika. Um, the, we got there and she was knocked out. She was unconscious. No, she was conscious when we got there and she went into a seizure and then she couldn't move. And she was like in a coma. And so we thought, what are we going to do? We were going to film her going to the Nike headquarters and two other things. So we figured, well, this is the reality of what's happening. We're making a documentary. So we set the tripod up in the back of that living room where she was lying. The parents had keys. They arrived because they dropped in basically every day. They, the mother goes over to her. She's trying to wake up her daughter. The daughter will not awaken. The dog is wandering around the apartment being adorable as usual. The father's just sort of standing in front of the camera, just like helpless. The mother's trying to wake up her daughter, speaking, whispering to her, talking to her. She can't get a rise out of Marika. Marika is basically in a coma. We're filming from the back of the room. I don't even know if they knew the camera was running. The mother gets up and starts like sobbing over about the, you know, looking out at the garden. And then, and they figure, they, they they stick around for a while and then they decide to go home. He So the mom leaves the frame, the father goes over and the most beautiful fatherly gesture, he touches his daughter's forehead just to see, does she have a fever? What, you know, it's the most beautiful moment. And then he grabs his bag and they leave and she does not come to, she does not stir. This was what, I mean, living with Marika was like. It was... I mean, it was very intense. And I got to say, to see those seizures, the first one happened on day one, the day we met her. We filmed for about four or five hours. And suddenly I wanted to get this beautiful silent shot of her, like upside down on her bed, leaning. <clears throat> Somehow it, she fell into a seizure. And I thought she was dying the day we met her. But this happened, if I had more experience, I would have known, no, this is going to happen. She'll, and she'll be like she can't breathe, and then she will come out of it. I mean, we were, we were terrified. And then it, it, each time we went, we would ex observe one or two of, or more of these frightening events. She would emerge from them, but they became longer, more frequent, sent her into the hospital more. Yeah, it was scary working with her, but she would come out of them, and she did not die in a seizure. She died as planned, the gentle death of euthanasia with Dr. Distelman's present and her parents, and she went the way she wanted to go. She didn't, she actually told me she would have preferred to die naturally. Um, that's one thing that was so hard about picking the day. She said pretty early on, I kind of hope that one of these days when I go into the hospital and I'm in a coma that I just won't come out of it. And then I don't have to make, make up my mind and pick a date. It was very, very hard for her to pick a date. But she had so much life force in her that never did happen.
But I think that does happen frequently with people who have signed up for medical aid and dying. If they're terminal, their disease might take them before the date. Um, but the really gentle death is having the doctor. I mean, some people die in their sleep, and I think that's pretty gentle. But, it, you know, the this procedure is designed to be as gentle as possible on the patient and is kind. And you can, you know, at least plan your goodbyes. It's really important to people. And that really does epitomize to me that this is a film of paradoxes as well, that even your hello and introduction to Morika is a foreshadowing of your goodbye. It It's a long goodbye. And I think you've touched on there the fact that I think what's so clever about your style of filmmaking is that there's this this broader overarching narrative that is her survival for so long as well and and lust for life um but then also the way that you feed in these little micro narratives that give us such emotional insight into the complexity of the relationships and the complexity of the emotions like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation of all the different parties that are involved in this and one of those is also you and one of the other really striking micro details that I found really affecting is where the wall is kind of broken um, and she reaches out to you and says just polar and that's the moment that that's your goodbye to her once she's decided that she's going through. And it's the moment that we, that it kind of reminded me, this is also about your relationship with her. And I just wondered if you could reflect on that goodbye and whether that was the point that it hit you that this was happening. Because I can imagine that it might've felt like there was an element of sort of unreality to it in a way, also being part of a kind of creative filmic construct. And it's just so poignant that one word feels like it's breaking the spell. Yeah. She did want to say goodbye to me um, because that was going to be the last moment we would ever see each other. Um it was it was moving it was very moving um yeah i mean that's why it's in the film at the right toward the end before she goes into the final inner sanctum um as i said i'm very interested in reflexive film you know where you're very aware of the presence of the camera the presence of the filmmaking that's very much the case in this film not in all of them not not in the nadia film but in this one because it is partly about the relationship the the relationship she built with me and also with Wolfgang behind the camera. Uh, often talked to talked about him and talked to him. Um, <clears throat> this was a very unique project in that sense that we got, we were, there was not much distance there. I mean, the camera gave us distance. I wasn't crying that night. I remember a lot of people were. The camera gave us distance and the film was predicated on this decision she'd made. So it wasn't, I think the professional aspect of it, knowing that we had to have our heads about us to capture this, 
that night on October 22nd, and we did not have Stephen there doing sound. It was just the two of us, Wolfgang and me. We really had to have our wits about us for the film. We had a responsibility to the film and partly a responsibility to Marika. She very much wanted to get the story out, so we could not fall apart on the last night. You know, we were making a movie as well as being present for the life-changing event of this woman that we had come to be very close to. Uh, it, it was the combination of these various aspects of our lives in relationship to her. Um, and we did. Uh, we did uh, remain responsible to the film. And I think we did it in a way that was not intrusive for the people that were there. We, again, set the camera at the back of the living room and just allowed things to happen kind of in a proscenium way where we were not not like at the goodbye party where we were handheld and walking around and getting intimate conversations. No, we were back. It was a wide shot. Then we moved to a second a position in the apartment where we could just see things in the distance and you can see so much emotion in people that is not being expressed verbally um, just by their faces, gestures, uh, all this, you know, I dealt with in the cutting room with Victor Ilyukin, who's my co-editor, you know, how to get the maximum emotional impact in combination with the music, you know, on screen that will get the audience to be there to feel what was the feeling of the, the, the evening, the feeling of this profound thing that was happening. I mean, that's the responsibility of the filmmaker to document it and, and then tweak it and not tweak, but form it in the edit room so that the emotional experience is the most powerful. And that underscores the theme of the film you must, in my opinion, the thing I love most and the thing that I think makes this process of filmmaking meaningful to me is to share and, and evoke this emotion in, on screen and in the audio that will make people viscerally feel in their gut the feeling and in their heart the feeling of what is going on in the story. So that was what I worked hardest, um, both in the shooting and the editing and the, and the choice of music. We had incredible, two incredible composers, uh, the use of music to, and, you know, getting this music out of these remarkable musicians, you know, you have to tell them what you need uh, and placing of already existing music. All this stuff works in, com in collaboration to get that emotional impact. And that is to me what it's all about. And I'm interested, Paula, what imprints has this film and this life left on you? And you've touched on this, but what do you hope are the imprints it leaves on the people that see it? I hope that the audience and the people that see this movie will be moved by this predicament that this young woman is in and that they can will identify with her as I did in the making of it and see, what if this were me? What if this were my husband, my child, you know, my mom? What if this was somebody close to me? Oh my God, would I? And they can kind of, some through the this journey that 
Marika goes on in Addicted to Life, that the audience members will will feel her predicament and connect to it and see how it maybe is reflected in their own life. I mean, it is kind of, in its own way an advocacy film. I mean, it it had a big impact on me. I already believed in uh, it that states should and, and governments should allow people to choose. I, I felt that very strongly before we started this movie. That's what appealed to me about it. But that did not waver. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot more about it. But it I to me, personal liberation is one of my highest values. And uh, this other films that I've done are about that as well. Uh, Writer of O about like intimate emotional and sexual liberation, um, other, you know, creative work, liberating people emotionally and their creative life. And this one is about it in this aspect um, of how you can meld together your life and your, your death and see it as a continuum. I don't want to sound corny, but we're going there. How can we allow a vision and an acceptance of that to, to shine light and kind of illuminate one, your own life, my life, the life of the viewer, the life of the people that love Marika and, and see it kind of let it, let that, view illuminate your current life so you don't just go through the motions but you remember frequently we're going there let's make the most of it in the meantime that was her big message i think it's a big buddhist message and she was she told me she was she believed in buddhism um that's helped a lot of people um it's it. This is it. This, we're not going to heaven. This is it. So, you know, so I hope this film has that kind of effect on people. I think it, yeah, it, it, it underscored that in me. It's still hard for me to accept the death of, of a loved one, you know, upcoming. Should that happen? I can't, I'm, I have magical thinking about it. Like, Oh, it'll never happen. But little by little, hopefully this film and other, um, ways of seeing, thinking, meditating, uh, reading will allow people to kind of see, stop being, living in a state of denial of the reality, allow this thing that seems so scary and negative to have a positive light on your life. I hope that happens. I think that's what, how Marika kind of used this whole predicament she was in to allow this idea about her impending death, which she pushed farther and farther forward to shine light on and give illumination and life force to, to her daily existence, which was a really difficult daily existence. I mean, I don't think a lot of people could put up with what she put up with and keep on having this incredibly positive attitude. She, you know, she displays that in the movie and it's, it's, she was a great, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, inspiration to a lot of people. She has a huge following among uh, people with disabilities um, in, you know, who have, who know her story, particularly in Belgium. She has a huge following. And I think through the Paralympics as well, she's inspired a lot of people. That's what I hope the movie does also like show it to a wider audience. So they sense, get this sense of uh, being inspired by someone who did use this in the most positive way, this potentially negative predicament that they're in, that she was in.
I know we've touched on sort of some of the difficulties in in fundraising for the film um and also before we before we started recording about kind of the media reception of it and trying to to spread the message of the film and will a lot of your energy for the rest of this year be going towards the raising awareness of the film and of Marike's story or are there other creative projects that you now have in the pipeline well the musical obviously but <laughs> yeah that was kind of a joke I mean I don't think do a musical, but something that you know does not and in, 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 you know perhaps is less emotionally uh demanding I mean they're all they all have to be emotional but no I am working on a couple of projects new projects that you know are just in the nascent uh planning stages and and work to keep me going you know like paying commissioned works um which i'm doing also but yes my partner rebecca borden uh esquire she's a retired lawyer from cbs is an incredible partner and mark dames are co they're they're the two co-producers one in new york or the new york area one in belgium that uh, they're working with me on getting this movie out mark dames did a remarkable job um he got it into the film festival in Ostend in, on the coast of Belgium at, at the last days of January and then uh, set up a theatrical release of the film, which has happened in Belgium in the month of February. It was very, very well received. And uh, and we made a deal with uh, VRT, Belgium, Flemish television, that it will be on. We don't have a date yet. But yes, we're working very hard on getting the film into festivals. It I just came back from the Wisconsin Film Festival where it had an incredibly wonderful screening on this past Sunday, uh, the 16th of April, and uh, with a great Q&A. And on May 6th, uh, it, it will premiere in Germany at the Munich Documentary Festival. I'm going over for that. There are three screenings in Munich, um, the 6th, the 9th, and the 11th of May, I believe, at the Munich Documentary Film Festival. And we're waiting on others, some other, we've gotten some other acceptances, but those are the the immediate uh, ones and, you know, working on trying to get it seen in, by wider audiences through, through uh, documentary television. So that's a big step and we're hoping and praying. <laughs> well, my prayers are very much um, with you, for you. And I am so grateful for your time, for your vision and for, for this conversation, because it, it's, had such huge impact on me and and I hope that it does to to the audience who hear it as well and I, I mean I could sit and chat to you forever but I'm going to let you get away but I will ask you Paula um before I let you go um the question I ask all of my guests which is what does joy mean to you joy I love it. I want, I'm really working on integrating more of it into my life. Um, it's, uh, you know, sometimes like lying out uh, outside, looking up at the sky and hearing fresh air is a big part of it. The sound of birds, that to me, I, it just feels like joy and liberation. And I was lucky I had that this morning going out from the apartment here in Brooklyn and seeing a gorgeous blue sky and in this little park nearby. Um, 
Yeah, it's in a lot of aspects of life. Uh, but I need, and I think a lot of people like me need, who are caught up in living our daily life with all the demands and all the craziness and the internet and all this madness to allow, like take 10 seconds and like look, focus on your breath. You know, I need to do that more and I'm really working on that. And, uh, or just touch yourself in a way sensually on your hand or on your face or hear the sound of birds wake yourself up out of this kind of stupor that we're in. I, I, I got to say, I, when I see people like buried in their phone, I think, please wake up out of it, you know, focus on, on the moment. That's, that's what it is. Um, yeah, I guess that's how I would, it's a very amorphous answer, but. <laughs> I'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance, and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.